This is the 10,000 Depositions Later podcast, episode 62. I'm Jim Garrity. Today's episode, a tool for motivating deponents to reveal what they know without fearing retaliation. You've surely encountered witnesses that you interviewed privately, but who didn't want to go on record or testify about everything they knew because of the incredible career damage they would likely suffer. It's so common, such a regular part of our practice as trial lawyers. Witnesses are themselves keenly mindful of the fact that telling everything they know is either going to cost them their current job or might cost them future career opportunities or even worse. All witnesses have their own lives, their own careers, their own families to support, and few of them want to get drawn into someone else's battle that will in no way benefit them and that might well subject them to terrible career, financial, and social retribution. You know, I've heard so many clients that are unfamiliar with the judicial system say to me, if you just depose so-and-so, they'll have to tell the truth because they're under oath. Well, that isn't how it always works. I wish it were. It isn't. Some witnesses arrive at the deposition with no intention of revealing their most critical firsthand knowledge. They know, like you and I do, that if they share everything they know, there's going to be a price to pay. It might come from a current employer, a former employer in the form of bad references, for example, or it might come from colleagues in the industry, even people simply in their social circle. So let's get started, beginning with a few questions about your own past efforts to protect upcoming deponents from retribution so that they won't hesitate to share everything they know to help you. Question number one, have you had conversations in the past with witnesses where they expressed genuine or substantial fear about telling the complete truth? Question number two, if you've never filed a motion to ensure that papers filed in your case do not use the names of non-party witnesses to protect them, why not? Third question, have you ever considered doing it? but decided against it for some reason? And if so, what was that reason? What I want to share with you today in this episode is a tool that you can use in your litigation to shield non-party deponents who may suffer retaliation from the public disclosure of their role in the case. And of course, these disclosures don't just come from the people involved in the lawsuit. There are companies that make money from vacuuming up publicly available court filings and publishing them online. There are many websites that now scan state and federal court dockets and publish those filings. One, for example, is PacerMonitor.com, which bills itself as an advanced tool to conduct research. Another site that does this is called Justia.com, J-U-S-T-I-A.com, which says it's simply providing access to the law. Now, I'm not hitting on these companies for any particular reason. It's just what they do. Once they post these filings on the websites, The filings are then quickly indexed by all the major search engines. In fact, when getting ready for this episode, I went to Google, typed in the names of five random clients I picked off my client list, and as I expected, saw that the first search result on Google for four out of the five was a link to a pleading in a case on Pacer Monitor or Justia. And so when these folks' current employer or a future employer or a friend or colleague decides to run a search to see what comes up under their name, the first thing they learn is that my client was involved in a lawsuit. 
forget all their life accomplishments. They were involved in a lawsuit. That's the first thing that Google tells us. So in a way, at least online, involvement in a lawsuit as a party or non-party witness can define that individual. So it's important to appreciate that retaliation against the non-party who gives testimony in a case isn't just going to come from the immediate participants. It could come from future employers who decide not to hire, future organizations that run web searches to figure out whose side this new potential member has taken, or who they're about to bring into their community. Most non-party witnesses are well aware of this, and so might not give you the full benefit of their testimony if you and I haven't taken steps to protect them, to preserve their reputations. So the tool I urge you to consider is a motion to redact their names from documents that refer to them or to seal the documents in their entirety. Documents you would want to include within the scope of your motion would include pleadings, discovery responses, witness and exhibit lists, motions, Rule 26 disclosures if you are in federal court, and of course attachments to any of these documents. Orders allowing this have popped up in a number of cases, in particular in the field of class action securities fraud litigation. So let me give you some quick background to explain the why and the how. If you've had any passing reference or involvement in securities fraud cases, you'll know that the plaintiffs are subjected to a heightened pleading standard before they can conduct any discovery. That's the result of a federal law that's known as the Private Securities Litigation Reform Act, or the awkward acronym PSLRA. So no discovery at all until the lawsuit survives the pending motions to dismiss. You know, in many areas of practice, a plaintiff can file a complaint with bare bones allegations and then use the fact of the pending lawsuit to get the discovery they need to keep the lawsuit in play. Doesn't happen in securities litigation especially litigation under 10b-5, which is the rule that targets securities fraud. You can't do that. You have to have the meat, the substance of your lawsuit in the complaint going in. So obviously that makes the allegations in those complaints all important. If there isn't enough detail to survive a motion to dismiss, it's game over. That means the plaintiffs have to plead enough significant and detailed facts to create a strong inference that the defendant knew that its actions were wrong and decided to act anyway. That can be a high bar. So the way that the plaintiff's lawyers in securities fraud cases get around this prohibition against early discovery is by conducting confidential pre-suit interviews of former highly placed employees of the corporate defendant. And with those confidential interviews, they can at least lay out enough detail to get by those motions to dismiss. And they protect the identities of those witnesses in their initial filings by referring to them not by their names, but by code words like CW1, confidential witness one, CW2, and so on, or as a former employee, or by job title such as former senior underwriter or a former senior product manager. Now the defense bar in these cases says these acronyms and vague references are simply an effort to prevent defense counsel from figuring out who they are and getting those folks to see if they actually said what's been attributed to them in the complaint. And there might be some truth to that. But without question, a more critical reason is that these employees are highly likely to be subjected to retaliation. They frequently work in the tech and financial industries. Those are very small communities, relatively speaking, where everyone knows everyone, 
highly placed officials who are identified as cooperating in a securities fraud lawsuit against their former employer might as well get their CDL license from Truckmaster International and hit the open road because their reputation is going to suffer if word gets out that they were actively cooperating behind the scenes with the plaintiff's lawyers against their former employer. And so courts have entered orders expressly directing that no party shall identify any confidential witness in publicly filed documents in the lawsuit or any related litigation. And that can be accomplished by sealing the filings or by redaction or by generic references that don't name the witnesses. And the orders from those cases, as well as the motions leading to the orders, will contain some great citation to supporting case law. I've included citations in the show notes to this episode to two different motions asking a court to approve the filing of documents under seal where the filings contained witness names. And I've also included citations to two orders that prohibited the disclosure of the identity of those witnesses. Both of the motions cite to a range of cases supporting the notion that non-parties have a significant interest in keeping their employment and other identifying information secret in litigation. One motion cites cases that says that the disclosure of their identities would infringe the rights of the non-parties witnesses to privacy, which is a compelling reason for sealing or redacting the information. The other motion makes the same point, as do the two orders in the show notes. And uh, for your ease and to help you get started, if you need to research this, I've also listed uh, citations to three different decisions on this topic so you can go right to those cases. So what to do if you want to protect key witnesses from retaliation as a result of their upcoming deposition and to get the best possible testimony you can from them. First, file a motion asking the court to forbid the filing of any papers that contain the actual identities of non-party witnesses. Second, draft the proposed order for the court if your jurisdiction requires you or allows you to draft the papers that outlines the plan for how such witnesses will be identified. Identification should be uniform in all of the filings regardless of the party. So if you're going to refer to a non-party witness by their job title or by the acronym CW, everyone should do that. Third, ensure that the proposed order contains teeth. There should be severe sanctions for the violation of the non-disclosure requirement. So either include that in your draft or ask that the court impose certain specific sanctions that you decide are appropriate. Next, let your witnesses know when you interview them before their depositions that you've taken steps to protect them from being publicly identified in court filings. That is likely to provide the witnesses with the kind of comfort level they need to come forward, to trust you, and to share what they know. Next, I recommend that you file these motions as soon as the action is commenced because you're going to want to reach out to potential witnesses if you haven't already once the lawsuit is up and running. And you're going to want to be able to make those representations to these witnesses about protecting their identities in court filings. Next, you'll increase the odds of success with your judge if you can provide specific facts to support your efforts. If you can't, if you don't have any specific proof or evidence of retaliation, then just go with the common sense arguments about retaliation against witnesses by past, current, or former employers or other organizations in the industry. But if you can gather facts, add those to your motion. What would those be? Well, it might be specific threats of retaliation or pressure against the specific witness that you've already spoken with. 
It might be evidence of threats or pressure against other witnesses. It may be evidence that there have been prior lawsuits against one of the parties that the witness is going to be testifying against where the lawsuits allege retaliation or harassment against witnesses. And obviously, citations to cases like the ones I have in the show notes where courts have sealed files because of the retaliation risk are important to include as well. One last pointer on this, be mindful that the legal standard for sealing records may vary depending on what you want sealed and the stage that the case is at. For example, if you're going to seek the uh, sealing or redaction of discovery papers, the standard you may have to meet in your jurisdiction to get an order doing so is likely to be a good cause standard. On the other hand, if you're trying to seal records associated with dispositive motions, motions that are going to result in the dismissal of the entire lawsuit, there may be a heightened standard, a showing of a particularized substantial need before the court will do so. And the difference in those standards often relates to the this notion of a public's right to access to court records. So this theory on this goes, if a case is going to be thrown out, the public should be able to see the documents that were filed that led to dismissal. And that's where that higher particularized showing may apply in your jurisdiction. But wherever you practice, it's easy enough to research to see which standard applies. Either way, I think courts now are far more inclined to seal records upon request and to find that the justifications you give meet the standard because of the relative ease now with which papers filed in court make it onto the web and affect and ruin people's careers. I have regular conversations with non-party witnesses just like that. I reach out to those witnesses proactively in all my cases where the law and the ethical rules allow me to do so. Those interviews are a gold mine of information in almost every situation. All right, before we wrap up, let me share with you one situation that I encountered with a witness last year. I was hired to represent a party in a brand new lawsuit, so I immediately reached out to one of the key witnesses, a very high-level former human resource official. And she agreed to speak to me confidentially, and she also made it clear that she had critical information that would support my case. But with equal force and equally as openly, she made it clear that she would not come to a deposition and tell me under oath everything she knew. She said that she had herself been fired from the organization and that she had been unemployed for a full year afterwards. She had two small children at the time and she had to move out of state to even make ends meet. Now, at the time I talked to her, she had landed another job in the human resource field, but she said the position was very sensitive and there was simply no way that she was going to do anything to jeopardize that job. And she's very sophisticated. She knows that court filings get indexed by all the major search engines and that her name would soon pop up if she were identified in filings. And so she was gravely and probably correctly concerned that in the human resource world, if word got out, became publicly available in search engines and so on, that she were cooperating, that she would be fired from her current job and would probably never land another human resource job in her lifetime. So she asked me to understand and appreciate her situation and made it crystal clear, I'm not going to do that. I can't afford to do it. I've got to protect my family. So of course I was ready. What did I say to her? I outlined the steps that I've talked to you about in this episode. I explained to her that I was quite familiar with the risks posed to non-party witnesses when they come in and give testimony, when they're identified in court papers. I explained the process that I could take and that I was prepared to do so and had done it for other witnesses. And I can tell you 
that the look on her face changed immediately. She was so deeply appreciative that I had taken time to think about the impact on her life, on her children, of coming forward to help me, and that I was ready to spend my time, energy, and resources to protect her. Once I explained the process, what she said back to me was this, look, if you can get a court order and you can show me what the order says, it will provide that level of protection. I still understand there's some risk, but if you will do that for me and my family, I'll come forward and I'd be willing to talk in a deposition under oath. And that's what your witnesses want from you, the non-party witnesses that you don't represent. They want you to show some awareness that what you're about to do, that what you're asking from them poses real life risks to them and that you've thought about it and that you're willing to spend your own time and money to help provide at least some significant layer of protection. That's all they need. All right, that's it on this valuable tool for protecting the reputations, careers, families of non-party witnesses. When you can assure those folks that you're going to obtain a court order and that you've obtained one to protect their identities and that all lawyers are barred from identifying them in any papers that will be available publicly, you're going to get better participation and you're going to get better testimony. Thanks for listening. Have a great day.